emergency in New York City, and I will explain what that means. Mary Douglas, in her seminal anthropological opus, Purity and Danger, wrestled to provide a working definition of humanity's strange relationship with this thing we call taboo. Taboo, she alleges, is associated with ideas of purity and pollution, about dirt. Have you ever thought about what dirt really is? Contrary to common assumption, dirt really isn't some essential physical substance that can exist without context. Dirt can only exist in a context, and the right context that allows dirt to exist is actually the context where it should not be. <coughs> Sorry. Mary Douglas defines dirt as matter out of place. I happen to have a great example right here. A piece of shit on a subway platform. An actual cigar-shaped sausage of human waste molded by some unknown stranger's ass conspicuously perched on my commute. This turd of human make is not just dirt because it exists, but for invading spaces where it does not belong, that it sits there almost leisurely on the subway platform, watching the trains go by, as if to say, hello world, here's me. And even though the tabooed object is really nothing but the right thing in the wrong context, its presence radiates menacingly like the sudden appearance of some terrifying god. The turd cannot reach out and harm me, yet I fear it, as if it implies that something more sad or sinister has been imposed upon us, that order has fallen and chaos reigns. Very much like an encounter with a bridge troll, harassing us on our way to pasture, or some monstrous ogre blocking our way through the forest. Those of you who pay close attention may have noticed that I am trying to devise an Odinic divination technique based on the subway system and the behavior of homeless people often found there. I am by no means a psychic, but when people start to brazenly shit and piss all over public spaces, I shall take this as an omen of ill things to come. The signs are all around me. Outside the relative safe zones of the quarantined home, tribal war rages. The fiercely territorial bums of New York City who don't usually venture beyond their regular nomadic tradeways or within a few blocks of their home base have begun migrating across town. The natives of the Lower East Side are now being pushed out by marauders from 33rd Street and beyond, taking advantage of the power vacuum of the crumbling empire surrounding them. They seem to respond to these strange times by getting ever weirder themselves. Just today, right outside the Nigerian consulate, I came across a fellow wearing a garbage bag poncho and some kind of cardboard headdress, kind of like a Shinto priest or shaman or something, gazing into a mirror as if he were scrying. One must wonder what visions this Odinic initiate saw in that mirror. It recalls the laconic mysteries of the runic inscription NB566 from Bergen, Norway, which reads, What so so er i so so? Sik so so er i so so? Or in English, What did he see who gazed into the basin? He who gazed into the basin saw himself. Perhaps it is not the trollish machinations of spiteful microbes that we should fear the most, but the ogres that dwell inside the human condition, all too eager to subvert civilization's divine imitation. Perhaps these subway turds are blessings in disguise, friendly warnings left by vagrant gods reminding us to watch our step. But of course, it does prompt me to ask, 
Why the hell am I still in New York City? Well, to tell you the truth, I've been preparing for this exact eventuality. See, here's the plan. I fly out of JFK with some of my top North American supporters. We will identify each other by the secret Patreon gift that they received from me, and I'll be wearing socks with runes on them. When we land in Bergen, my militia of Norwegian Patreon supporters will be waiting for us in the parking lot with a fleet of vintage motorcycles and dirt bikes that I bought after my previous Blood Diamond scheme. This will be on a Thursday, so some restaurants will be serving potato dumplings with salted lamb. That'll fuel us for the first leg of the journey. We'll have to save the soup bones and use them to fashion crude spearheads. Once we get to Rogaland, we'll use our crude spares to hijack a car ferry that will take us all around the southern coast until we come to Sweden. Once we've taken the car ferry and tarred and feathered all the crew, we might have to wait for favorable weather conditions. This is a good opportunity to do some light sightseeing. Possibly plunder the archaeological museum in Stavanger. But once we set off from the coast with our ferry loaded with dune buggies and motorbikes, we'll be up against the hardest stretch of our tour. We'll have to get by on overpriced coffee and pancakes with brown cheese for about five days until we reach the shores of Scania. Making landfall, we will drive to Malmö, where we'll hire mercenaries and purchase Yugoslavian-made hand grenades for about $10 a pop. Reaching Copenhagen, we will then use those to blow the hinges off the front doors of the Danish National Museum. Two of us will take care of the gift shop, while the rest ransack the Bronze and Iron Age exhibits. From there on, we'll be emulating the organization of the Iron Age warband, consisting of a prince, that is me, officers and foot soldiers, as reconstructed by the in-house archaeologist Jörgen Ilchar, based on southern Scandinavian weapon sacrifices. Those exact weapons will be redistributed between our ranks according to the respective Patreon rewards tiers. If, during our raid, we come across Professor Ilchar, he will be offered fertile holdings if he joins our ranks as Chief Advisor of Warfare and Tactics. That will make us unstoppable. Once we've armed ourselves to the teeth with prehistoric weaponry, we go south towards the Low Countries, where we'll stock up on sausage and rutabaga. We will rendezvous with Axel Klösen somewhere in the Benelux, where he'll be hiding in the woods with any remaining European patrons. Then we'll follow the Rhine southwards, taking the sons of local bureaucrats hostage and raising them as Scandifuturists. Like the Goths, Langobards, and Huns before us, we will establish ourselves as a malleable, tribal blob that absorbs all local people into our own mythopoeic, retro-futurist narrative, complete with the Scandinavian myth of origin. And then, when we reach Koblenz, where the Rhine meets the Mosul, BAM! It's kingdom time. The golden hills glistening with the noblest grapes. Riesling, Elbling, Muller Thurgau, lightly peppered with the royal blue Spätburgunder, aka Pinot Noir. We shall carve this nation out of the same drunken foundation as it was conceived. And I'll be sacred king and high priest of the cult of some weird acculturation of Bacchus and Odin, wearing my crown of vines upon a troubled brow, performing sacred marriage in the vineyard every night, and all my patrons and supporters will be landed nobility, the tribal elite of Rugianova, New Rogaland, between the steep hills of the Mosul Valley. And every night we will toast with beer buckets filled to the brim with the choicest Riesling. And should we die before the dream, the end game of Brute Norse, is finally realized, then rest assured that we will all meet again as curators and vintners in the great cabinet of curiosities come winery in the sky, where our god Odin Bacchus lives. And if I die before any of you, please bury me with a bottle of decent Blaufrankisch, or Hungarian Tokai, or even the ancient Gouet Blanc, the flesh of exotic animals, my motorcycle at my feet, and my javelins and bogsword at my side as dancing girls in egg-fed-style string skirts do cartwheels past my barrow, 
let the poets sing. That I, Eirik Storesund, of the Brute Norse podcast where we walk backwards into the future, died fighting for my right to party. Valhalla is one of the most famous concepts of Norse mythology. Most of you probably have some idea of what it's all about, but let's run with the basics anyway. The most famous and elaborate description of Valhalla comes from Snorri Sturluson's 13th century prose Edda. The main purpose of the prose Edda wasn't actually to be the manual of Norse mythology that we treat it as today, but a learning tool for young Icelandic poets to make sense of pagan poetry, which was littered with metaphors referring to mythological concepts, figures, and events that were fading into obscurity. This was at a time where traditional poetry was being challenged by continental forms of entertainment, in the form of music and courtly ballads and romances and such. In particular, skaldic poetry was falling out of fashion because it was a complicated genre that necessitated great skill and know-how, not just to compose it, but also to understand the poems themselves. Speaking very generally, Norse poetry can be divided into two main categories, skaldic poetry and eddic poetry. Eddic poetry is often narrative and recalls the pursuits of gods and ancient heroes, but not necessarily always. The poems in the Eddic style are difficult to date, and some of them may not actually have been composed by and for pagan audiences at all. People continued to compose poems in the Eddic style well into the Middle Ages. The so-called Eddic poems are by convention anonymous, unlike the other category, skaldic poems, which tend to have an authorship attached to them. Though quite a few skaldic poems also follow Eddic conventions in terms of meter. While skaldic poetry was also composed both in the pagan and the Christian era, we tend to trust them when they claim that they are pagan poems by pagan poets. Scholars have employed everything from linguistics to cognitive psychology to determine which ones are truly pagan and which ones are merely faking it for that ancient and legendary flair. But the problem with skaldic poetry is that it contains less exposition and was composed for an audience that fully understood its most basic cultural codes, attitudes, jargon, and heavily layered metaphors. They tend to describe real-life events but contain enormous amounts of pagan, legendary, and mythological intertext. So while they may express genuine pagan attitudes, we rely on medieval scribes like Snorri to make sense of these references. So what kind of poems were the skaldic poems? Well, some of them praised the military victories of kings, that's kind of the, the main stereotype. Or they might be elegies to the memory of someone, or celebratory descriptions of prized artifacts. Like there's an entire skaldic microgenre called shield poems. But many skaldic poems are simply just spontaneous verses to mark an occasion or demonstrate the skill of the poet. Skaldic poetry was believed to have a sacred origin, and originally had two main connotations. It was aristocratic, and it was martial. Hence, skaldic poets were staples of the Norse military elite, where poetry was tightly interwoven with how they communicated their warrior ideology. Though skaldic art is a uniquely Scandinavian innovation, the concept is very old. Look at Beowulf, for example. 
Even the Romans noted how poets were key players in communicating Germanic warrior ideology, and the preceding heroic poetic tradition probably goes all the way back to the Proto-Indo-Europeans. And that's a subject we'll return to later. So, with all due respect to Snorri, right? Snorri's vision of Valhalla was not handed down as one single coherent idea from the Viking Age, but reconstructed by Snorri himself, based on bits and bobs and pieces and little fragments and references in surviving poems that he had access to at the time. Some of these were Eddic, some of these were Skaldic. And since the Edda was a compendium of poetics, first and foremost, Snorri uses Norse myth as a device to explain metaphors as he goes along. So it is clear that some parts of his descriptions are rooted in something substantial, even if we may cast some doubt on his interpretations. So if these sources are authentic, then they represent something of the pagan worldview. The question is, how far can these references be stretched, and how are we supposed to interpret them? When the mythological content of the Edda is introduced in chapter 2, the part called Gulvaginning, Snorri introduces it all as taking place in a magically induced mirage. This allowed him to say that none of the things that he's talking about actually ever happened, and the manner in which Valhalla is introduced is probably Snorri's own invention entirely. So, in a way, Snorri is openly admitting to artistic license, even though we must assume that he filled the gaps with things that he believed to be true to the subject. On an absolutely basic level, Snorri describes Walhol, or Valhalla, as a great hall. The roof is thatched with shields, presumably of fallen warriors. Case in point, Snorri here cites a skaldic metaphor in an actual skaldic stanza to prove that he is being honest and not just making it up. In this case, shields are called Odin's roof tiles in so-and-so skaldic poem. So just based on that introductory note, pagan poets obviously drew a connection between the attributes of the battlefield and Odin's abode, though Valhalla is not actually mentioned by name. The same poet, by the way, also refers to shields as the pennies of Odin's hall. But while Snorri does invite us to imagine Valhalla literally roofed with shields, he does not mention Valhalla's apparently shield-based economy. This is a good example of Snorri cherry-picking his sources. And by the way, outside of Snorri and perhaps some of his sources, the name Valhalla is only mentioned a couple of times in pre-Christian poetry. The interesting bit here is that Valhalla, which presumably means Hall of the Battlefield Corpses, kind of sounds like a skaldic metaphor itself, called a kenning. And that is actually, probably, exactly how the name came to be. There are linguistic arguments that speak against Valhalla being the original name of the place, but a kenning, fossilized in the jargon of late Viking Age poets and their immediate audiences. In fact, the very notion of Valhalla as one distinct, clearly defined and named place might have been the result of a gradual process that kept on developing even after the last organic recipient of the Norse pagan tradition was dead and buried. Anyway, Snorri continues to quote various poems, chiefly the Eddic poem Grimnismal, which provides an elaborate description of pagan cosmology. Cosmic gravity is stressed by the fact that the anonymous poet of Grimnismal places Valhalla immediately next to Yggdrasil, the world tree. And using this poem and others, Snorri paints an image of Valhalla as an almost fairy tale-like aristocratic hall, tremendously massive in size, inhabited by hordes of fallen warriors who practice things like sword juggling and combat, and are magically resurrected after they die in every battle. The men are called Einherjar, or singular Einheri which may mean something along the lines of those who fight alone or those who fight as one. Other etymologies have also been suggested. 
When the Einherjar don't fight, they feast and are waited upon by Valkyrie serving girls who treat them to mead spouting from the udders of a fantastic goat and pork from a boar that is slaughtered and reborn every day. In Snorri's prose, it is remarked that even though Valhalla is tremendously crowded, its sheer size ensures that it's spacious enough to accommodate even more. And yet, when the rubber hits the road, the army will not seem sufficient. When the wolf, as Snorri puts it, arrives. Alluding, of course, to the sun-swallowing Fenris wolf, the great enemy of the gods. And this, of course, provides context for the purpose of Valhalla, which is that Odin needs warriors for the final battle, which is to come sometime in the mythological future, when the gods finally clash with their cosmic enemies, the so-called Jotnar, more commonly known to English speakers as giants, though that is actually a very awkward translation of the term. So the endgame of Valhalla is apocalyptic, eschatological, not just in the sense of the individual's personal life cycle, but in the life cycle of the universe itself. Every Einheri is a foot soldier to the gods in their attempt to stop or stall their inevitable and impending doom. To become an Einheri, you must obviously die, and that is where the Valkyries, or Valkyrjur, come in. Besides performing as hostesses and waitstaff in Valhalla, these female entities fly through the air and act as Odin's recruiters and administrators. In Norse legendary literature, Valkyries also act as love interests of tragic heroes and champions. Snorri explains that Odin summons them to every battle, where they cherry-pick which warriors are supposed to die and also who is to be victorious. The term Valkyria literally means choosers of the battlefield corpses, and the prefix Val is obviously the same as Valhalla. The term Valr has cognates in many Indo-European languages, where it may mean ghost or spirit of a deceased person, but in Old Norse, Valr has the very specific meaning of war dead, which may remind us of last episode, the Eire, or deified war dead in Japan's Yasukuni, with the distinct difference that the dead in Valhalla are never referred to as Valir, but Einherjar. So being Valr and being an Einheri is not quite the same thing. Snorri also quotes a curious passage from Grimnismal stating that Odin shares half of the slain with Freya, who takes her share to another hall by the name of Folkvanger. This is not really addressed in any other source. But Snorri is also of the opinion that the pagans of yore discriminated between honorable death in battle and less than honorable death of old age and disease. Those who die on the battlefield dine with the gods, while those who die less heroically go to hell. That is Old Norse Hel, spelled with one L, and more like the Greek Hades than its Christian namesake. I should say that this is not really what most of our sources imply. What Snorri seems to be doing is creating this false dichotomy where he projects onto his pagan forebears a pagan and implicitly misguided distortion of heaven and hell. Paganism is painted as a sort of anti-Christianity where the weak are punished and only strength is respected. This reads more like a parody of paganism than an actual widespread attitude, given that the absolute majority of people in the Viking Age died of completely natural causes. An actual Norse pagan would probably be more likely to think that strength and weakness speaks for itself, without the need for moral judgment. But, as we will see later on, there is an actual possibility that pre-Christian Scandinavians had a concept of unfavorable afterlives as well. Pagan skaldic poetry is actually highly honest about the dread ambivalence of death. However, later Christian scribes writing about the legendary past painted paganism as a sort of death cult where non-heroic death was scoffed upon and where people actually looked forward eagerly to dying. 
This stereotype, because that's what it is, persists in the popular notions of the Viking Age even to this day. A very important side note here is the belief in the so-called Ettestupa, literally kin cliffs, where the pre-Christian Scandinavians threw themselves to their death in order to avoid falling ill or dying of old age. More correctly, I should say, it is better to say that the Ettestupa tradition is the belief of medieval Christians that their own pagan ancestors believed that they could get a more favorable afterlife by tossing themselves off a cliff. There's no actual evidence to suggest that anybody in pre-Christian Scandinavia did anything of the sort. While it is somewhat self-evident why medieval Christian Scandinavians would have a very negative view of suicide, everybody in Norse society, whether in paganism or Christianity, was highly dependent and accountable for their family. So while being old and sick was probably not very desirable, suicide was probably not a viable option unless they were suffering under some sort of abnormal crisis. Quite bizarrely, in 13th century Norway, attempting to commit suicide was a crime punishable by death. Anyway, the notion that Norse pagans yearned to die rose to prominence in the 17th century with the first Swedish translation of Gautrek's saga, a legendary tale from the 13th century and the source of all this nonsense. Specifically, it's the first chapters, often called Dalafivlatotr, aka the story of the idiots of the valley, in which a certain Swedish king by the name of Gauti gets lost in the forest and happens upon this isolated family of country bumpkins who reluctantly take him in. They tell him about their peculiar tradition of sending their family members to Valhalla by jumping off a nearby cliff. And lo and behold, as the story progresses, each of the family members killed themselves for extremely trivial reasons. With Gautrek's saga translated into Swedish in the 17th century, it influenced the early modern understanding of Viking Age afterlife beliefs, and a trend emerged where people started identifying and inventing local kincliffs all over Sweden. Some of them were even claimed to be the one true original from the saga, even if some of them were only a few feet tall and would scarcely send a man to the hospital, let alone Valhalla. The Swedish archaeologist Andreas Norberg, in his very important study of Valhalla, Krigarna i Odin Sal, stresses a tendency among scholars to interpret Valhalla in accordance with the so-called evolutionary theory of religion, which assumes that complex religious ideas develop from more primitive notions. I should probably say that this is not a very fashionable idea in current academia. Traditionally, many scholars suppose that Valhalla developed from an ancient belief in mountains where the dead go to be reunited with their ancestors, as well as beliefs that the spirits of the dead entered stones and burial monuments and so on. The concept of ancestor mountains is mentioned in an Icelandic saga called Erbigja saga, as well as a few others, but Nulberg notes that the assumed connection between Valhalla and a rocky afterlife realm is one based on folk etymology and circular reasoning based in part on the aforementioned passage in Gautrek's saga. The saga artificially inserted this idea into the Swedish folk mind, where it developed a life of its own, creating a sort of mimetic loop where tales directly derived from Gautrek's saga are used as evidence for its reality. So it basically went from fake lore to folklore. Either way, it would be kind of weird if you could kill yourself to go to Valhalla. Surprisingly, it actually took a while before scholars began seeing Valhalla as something exclusive to the warrior elite. Even though that seems to be extremely obvious in hindsight, it just goes to show how badly Norse religion was understood in the 18th and 19th centuries. In some medieval texts, there is an overlap between Christian Hell and Valhalla, as well as between Odin and Satan, or other demonic entities. In the Icelandic grimoire tradition, which lasted basically from the 16th century to the early 20th century, Valhalla and Hell are sometimes the same place, and Norse gods and Christian demons like Belzebub dwell side by side. 
this was not the result of some carefully kept folk memory of the pagan past, but because Icelandic galdraböckir, that is books of magic, were produced by highly literate people who were very knowledgeable about Christian continental demonology and had access to Icelandic medieval texts. Many scholars seem to believe that Valhalla somehow grew out of a more general belief in the underworldly realm of Hel, even though our literary sources for Norse Hel are no older than our sources for Valhalla. And as I already said, Valr does not mean dead person generally, but the body of a person dead in battle. Nulberg particularly highlights Gustav Neckel's study Valhall, Studien über Germanischen Jenheitsglauben from 1913, which is one of the most comprehensive studies of Valhalla ever conducted, and was probably the most authoritative book on the subject prior to Nulberg's own study. Neckel can be credited with articulating some of the key assumptions about Valhalla that still stick with scholars today. This included observing that the term Valr occurs primarily in the meaning of slain warrior, and then occasionally as a term for the battlefield itself, where the fallen are spread out along with shields and weaponry. The core of Neckel's idea is again the assumption that the dead continue their pursuits in the afterlife. In this case, the battle rages on in death as it did in life. This belief got blended together with the notion that the dead communed in subterranean halls, which gradually came to be understood as communities of fallen warriors. The image of Valhalla in the poems is a developed version of this, where the fallen are imagined not as dead but elevated to a divine plane. However, Neckel makes the important distinction that the elaborate vision of Valhalla seen in Snorri and Grimnismal never actually manifested as sincere religious belief, but existed as an artistic motif in skaldic commemoration. In that sense, Valhalla is a stylized reflection of the battlefield itself. This might make Valhalla a comparatively late invention, but on the other end of the spectrum we find those scholars who allege that while Valhalla is depicted as a Viking Age hall, this is entirely circumstantial to how the sources survived. In reality, belief in Valhalla, maybe under a different name, could be as old as the lifestyle it depicts, and even as old as the cult of Odin itself. Sounds a little too optimistic for my taste, but it begs the question, how old is the cult of Odin and how old is the lifestyle depicted? Nuremberg seems to be of the opinion that any study of Valhalla necessitates the study of the military lifestyle of the Nordic Iron Age elites. A lot of the earlier academic theories concerned the etymology of Valhall, looking for alternative explanations for the name. The Norwegian philologist Magnus Olsen suggested in 1931 that the Val in Valhalla was not originally Old Norse Valr, but Proto-Germanic Walhaz, which is etymologically the same word as Welsh, but was originally used to refer to the Romans. According to Olsen's theory, Valhalla means the Welsh Hall, or the Roman Hall, since by Welsh they really meant Roman, and derives from Germanic eyewitness accounts of Rome's Colosseum, with its circus-like gladiatorial combat. Among his arguments, we find the suggestion that when the poem Grimnismal says that Valhalla has 540 doors, this is, according to Olsen, derived from the many gates and arches of the Colosseum. Supposedly, Germanic auxiliaries returning from service in the Empire brought these stories home with them, where it somehow got tangled up into afterlife beliefs, battlefield aesthetics, and life at royal courts. Some later scholars picked up where Olsen left off, but found it more reasonable to believe that if there was any earthly building that served as the prototype for Valhalla, then surely it had to be found in Scandinavia, such as the alleged religious center at Uppsala or the palaces of the royal dynasties. 
In the mid-2000s, the Swedish scholars Olof Sundqvist and Anders Kalif proposed a connection between the Scandinavian cult of Odin and the Roman cult of Mithras. Mithras was the subject of a mystery cult popular with soldiers stationed along the borders of the Western Roman Empire. Initiates to the Mithraic mysteries held feasts in underground chambers called Mithrariums, and the god is also depicted as a psychopomp who guides the spirits of the dead towards heaven. Sundqvist and Caliph remarks that a notion of Mithraic salvation may have motivated soldiers to fight hard on the battlefield. But all of this sort of hinges on whether or not Germanic mercenaries were actually initiated into the mysteries, and then they must have obviously convinced the rest of the Scandinavian elites to adopt the codes of their esoteric clique. Nonetheless, I would admit there are certain similarities. While it is impossible to accurately date exactly when the notion first manifested, Nulberg seems to favor the idea that yes, on the one hand, Valhalla is a true religious belief in the form of a posthumous elevation of martial aristocratic life, and yet also an aesthetic device intended to further the interests of the warrior elite. Nurberg suggests an interesting and important caveat, namely that myths and religious beliefs are often described in an epic narrative form. The myth and rituals may express a religious concept, but it is usually not mistaken for the true religious reality, or whatever we may call it. For example, the Christian heaven is often represented as this cloudy realm where people wear white gowns and play the harp, but you would have to be some kind of literalist mental dwarf to think that this is what heaven is actually like. Since humans can't really understand heaven in life, we must imagine a placeholder. Anyway, to be able to say something more substantial about Valhalla, we're gonna have to look at some of our most trustworthy primary sources and see what we can gather by seeing Valhalla through the eyes of the Viking-era military ideology and the skaldic poetic context in which Valhalla appears. We've already established that skaldic poetry was somewhat of a military cultural phenomenon, at least originally. Skaldic poetry was also firmly attached to the god Odin, and there's absolutely no shortage of references to Odin in the blood-soaked corpus of skaldic poetry. Yet, in terms of Valhalla, well, it's only named in two separate sources. These are two different 10th century poems dedicated to the memory of the Norwegian kings Eirik Bloodaxe and Håkon the Good. These poems are called Eiriksmål and Håkonarmål, respectively. This also accords with the chronological order, as they were both composed within five years to a decade of each other in the middle of the 10th century. Eriksmål was composed by an unknown but apparently Danish poet shortly after Erik's death. It opens with a monologue by Odin himself, recalling a dream where he foresees the arrival of a great king to Valhalla. He calls the order to prepare a feast for the Einherjar to deck the benches with hay, for beer to be tapped, and wine to be carried out by the Valkyries for the king's arrival. The ground trembles as if a thousand-man army approached, rumbling so deep that the god Bragi thinks that the god Baldr is returning from the underworld. Odin declares that no, it is in fact the human king Eirik, and sends the legendary heroes Sinfjotli and Sigmund to greet him. At this point in the poem, Bragi asks a very interesting question. What makes Eirik so deserving of such an honor, as opposed to other men? Odin replies that the one thing that qualifies Eirik to enter Valhalla more than anyone else is that he reddened and carried a bloody sword through many lands. In other words, because he killed an awful lot of people, as we might expect from a great Viking commander. The other poem, Håkonarmål, was composed by Eivind Skaldspoiler following the death of Håkon the Good. Håkon was actually Eirik's half-brother, and he died battling Eirik's sons at the Battle of Fitchar. They were both sons of Norway's unifying king, Harald Fairhair. 
Hawkon was raised in England under King Æthelstein, and he was a Christian. Nonetheless, the poem describes Hawkon almost as a pagan champion and protector of pagan sacred sites, which Eric's sons are elsewhere accused of destroying. His saga recounts that Hawkon's attempt at introducing Christianity to Norway was cut short by popular resistance, and hence he decided not to push the people towards conversion, and when he died, he is said to have requested whichever burial the people considered the most fitting. And hence, Norway's first Christian king was consequently given a pagan burial. Håkonarmal was composed by his court poet, who was also a personal friend, and probably witness to the king's death. Hence, the poem also deals with mourning, and a dreadful ambivalence of how people cope with death. In that regard, it is a contrast to the poem on which it was modeled, Eriksmal, since that poem mainly seeks to glorify Eric as a great military leader. So the poem begins with two Valkyries, who are sent by Odin to select which members of the dynasty are to die in the battle. On the battlefield, they see a king in chainmail, standing valiantly by his banner, surrounded by warriors shaking their spears. The king dons his golden helmet, he's laughing and cheerful, eager to protect the land. The lances are lowered, and the battle starts. Weapons clash, helmets rattle, shields split, painted red with blood. The imagery of the poem is particularly harrowing. The tide of arrows sprays the island's blood-red shore. Wound fires burn the fighters as the wave of blades booms in Odin's storm. Men sink in the stream of swords as the red waves of the wound sea wash over their shields, miserably trotting the path to Valhalla. The Valkyries once again turn their attention to Håkon. One of them, leaning on her spear shaft, looks down on him and says, Larger grows the company of the gods. Håkon looks up and beholds the Valkyries sitting on horseback, looking down on him, and he realizes that he has died. He is absolutely dumbfounded by this startling realization. Why are you doing this? The gods owe me this victory, he says. Mm, yes, the Valkyries acknowledge. You held the battlefield, the enemy fled, and the battle is over. Now we shall ride together to the green home of the gods, and Odin shall be told that a hero king is coming to greet him. The two lesser gods, possibly deified legendary champions, Bragi and Hermod, welcome Håkon and lead him inside. He is drenched in the blood of his enemies, and reluctantly he stands before the cruel god and is not happy to be there. I fear Odin's wrath, he says, but Bragi assures him that he has nothing to worry about. He ushers him to the feast, where he will partake in the ale of the gods, together with the Einherjar, who will do him no harm. Presumably he is worried because he sent many men to this hall himself. Håkon then gathers his war gear, and the gods greet him, recognizing him as a protector of sacred sites. At the end of the poem, the poet remarks how greatly the king was mourned, and how no better king will be born until the Fenris wolf is unleashed. He concludes with the following stanza. Cattle die, kinsmen die, land and people are destroyed. After Håkon went with heathen gods, many people will suffer. The poet, Eivind Skaldspoiler, would later go on to become the court poet of Håkon Jarl, the Earl of Ladir, who was also a sort of pagan revivalist. In other words, Eivind belonged to a Scandinavian cultural and military elite that may have been partly responsible for shaping the image of Norse mythology and religion as we know it. I mentioned the fact that Erik Bloodaxe and Håkon the Good were siblings. When their father, Harald Fairhair, 
conquered Norway, his crowning victory at Hafsfjord is depicted in another skaldic poem called Haraldskvæði. This poem does not mention Valhalla directly, but it does go very far to suggest that Odin is really, really invested in the pursuit of the military aristocracy, to the point where he forces the hand of fate towards certain outcomes. It is also chock-full of Odinic imagery, right down to the ritual role-playing of the poetic narrator. The poem consists partially of a conversation between a Valkyrie and a raven, hence the poem is also referred to as Ravensmål, or the raven's speech. The poet begins by asking for the attention of the sword-bearing men, that is to say, his intended audience, as he will tell of the great deeds of the King Harald, which were supposedly recounted to him by a pale maiden who is obviously a Valkyrie, who in turn heard it from the raven. What's up, raven? the Valkyrie asks. Your beak is bloody. Your breath reeks of death, and what's with all the guts hanging from your claws? Where did you come from? I reckon you spent the night with corpses. The raven ponders for a while and wipes its beak. And then it kind of goes, well, before I tell you, I should say that I've been tailing this guy Harold, the son of Halfdan, all my life, as have many other ravens ever since we hatched from our eggs. Surely you must know about this renowned king, lord of the Norwegians with his massive warships and reddened shields. He continues, and what follows next is an account of Harold's masculine prowess and preference over ladly joys over simple creature comforts like staying indoors. He simply is not one to rest by the fire with the girls dressed in downy mittens, but one who drinks to sacred occasions on the harsh sea to play games of war. By giving this exposition, the raven may be implying that Odin, the Hrapnagod, or raven god, takes special interest in Harold and that his conquest is all part of some great scheme. What follows next is an account of the battle, how great men from all over the country were gathered on finely decorated ships, carrying English lances and Frankish swords. Berserkers snarled and wolf coats howled, it says, shaking their weapons. The enemy thinks that they're in for a victory, but Harold teaches them how to flee. The poem now gets into the humiliation of the enemy, and that's where all this butt-wiggling goes on that I mentioned earlier in the episode. The ravens delight as they gorge on the fallen, which are dedicated to Odin. There's a lot of talk about drinking parties and the jargon of the poem, and also other skaldic poems, presumably because poems like these were composed to be performed in front of the king and the army as entertainment during feasts. This is what's referred to as a double scene. Dudes are drinking beer while imagining ravens drinking blood. I might as well just say it right now that that is probably also how we're supposed to understand the performance of the myth of Valhalla as well. When the warriors are wined and dined in the king's hall, they're supposed to feel like the warriors being wined and dined in Valhalla. Speaking of which, the Valkyrie asks how Harold's men are rewarded, and the raven goes on to say that Harold's men are treated lavishly. They play board games at the royal estate and are afforded shining swords, eastern slave girls, and Hunnic metal objects. The Huns, of course, were not around at the time, but the reference probably serves to compare the warriors to the heroes of the legendary past. His retainers wear gold rings and silver garnished swords, chainmail, crested helmets, and bracelets. There's mention of Harald's elite wolf warriors, the Ulfhednar, who are praised for their ferocity on the battlefield. There are certain similarities in the build-up between the two first Valhalla poems and Haraldskvæði, only here it is the living warriors who feast at Odin's mercy instead of the dead. Odin does claim the fallen, but the narrator does not bother explaining why. Either way, it culminates in a feast. 
The most puzzling stanzas of the poem are actually the last two, where the jesters and the clowns performing at Harold's court are accounted for. Particularly, this goes for a jester by the name of Andad. The stanza is simply too good not to read. <clears throat> Andad makes love to an earless dog, and does many other dumb things to make the king laugh. There are also those who carry burning shavings through the fire. They've put burning hats in their pants. These men deserve to get their asses kicked. The general attitude of Harald's Quida seems to be an appreciation for macho warrior culture and the ridicule of effeminate traits and weaknesses, which are characteristic only of how they paint the enemy. The jesters, though they entertain the king, are the subject of mockery, who deserve whatever they got coming. And this is actually something I've noticed elsewhere in Norse literature. There seems to be kind of a running gag that skaldic poets hate vulgar entertainers. And I think I recall a few examples from the sagas where jesters and dog show performers are abused by the king's retainers. Anyway, Haraldskvadi is actually ascribed to a few different poets, and though sections of the poem may be individually authentic, they were only compiled into one single work in modern times. There seems to have been some confusion, even in the Middle Ages, as to which poet composed what, meaning of course that there may originally have been several praise poems with the same name and subject. Some scholars argue that the more humorous and grotesque sections of the poem are the work of Theodolver of Huynir, who seems to have been Harold's favorite court poet. Dark humor seems to have been a characteristic of Theodolf's style, which may have served a therapeutic purpose in a warrior environment where death was omnipresent, where your brothers in arms are constantly dying, and where you have no idea which one of your pals is going to survive the next battle, or indeed if you will yourself. Unlike a modern office environment, Theodolf's fucked up sense of humor was an asset at his workplace. He has been described by scholars as somewhat of a trickster who used skaldic metaphors to create grotesque inversions where nice and terrible things switch places with each other. What is a battlefield anyway, with its shit and piss-stained trousers, severed limbs and scattered intestines? To you and I, it sounds pretty much like the textbook definition of hell on earth. But if you're a raven, well, it's not that bad. It's more like a little breakfast buffet or something. This seems to have been Theodolf's general attitude, which makes him, in some regards, a true servant of life, as my friend Bergsven Birgisson put it. Theodolf took a look at the things that Norse society considered taboo and weaponized it as a comedic and aesthetic propaganda tool for the warrior elite. Another one of his poems, Ynglingatal, pretends to be a regular and honorable genealogy of eastern Scandinavian kings. Some scholars point out that this can hardly actually be the case because Ynglingatal is in fact a long list of the bizarre and pathetic demise of various foreign kings. Unlike the life or afterlife of festive military glory described in other skaldic poems, the kings of Ynglingatal die quite dishonorably and enter these weird perverse death marriages with subterranean monster maidens and have dirty sex with the goddess of the underworld. If the proposition holds, then Ynglingatal appears to be a satire seen through the eyes of Viking Age ruler ideology. On this note, I will be cutting the episode short in anticipation of the next where we will be looking further at the social context of the Norse and Germanic warband, as well as some of the less flattering implications of the warrior afterlife. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast, I really mean that, where we walk backwards into the future. Now, I know that this is hardly the time to be asking for a handout, and I don't expect one, but I will say that if you have some spare cash and for whatever reason you adore my content and want to give something back, then I will say that there is a Brute Norse Patreon. 
It may give you access to our small but friendly Discord community, and there's even the possibility of physical rewards such as postcards, handwritten, and an embroidered patch, entirely exclusive to the Brute Norse Comitatus. All patrons also get a permanent 20% discount on shirts in the Brute Norse Teespring store, which is honestly the least thing I could do for the people who support me. Anyway, I promise we'll be seeing each other very soon for another retrospective stroll. Hopefully no longer towards the grim dystopia that I've been expecting, but a more thoughtful and localized world. Have a wonderful day, and please don't die to old age, disease, or battle.